0: Humanity is in pain. The modern age offered opportunity for more connection, but the more interconnected we've become, the further we've drifted apart. We pay much attention to what divides rather than what unifies. We've ignored the inherent symbiotic relationship between each other, our environment, and the universe. We've become addicted to the artificial and superficial at the expense of the natural and of depth. We tear each other down instead of build each other up. We judge first instead of love first. We expect conformity and shame the unique. We're in a period of chaos, confusion, and fear. But this period offers a catalyst for change, and for the sake of life on earth, change is needed. So what is the way forward? The way forward is to respect the law of free will, to encourage mind-body-spirit-wellness, To promote love, compassion, and understanding as core values, to be of service to others, and to honor the inherent sacred connection between all things.
1: Welcome to episode three of the Way Forward podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Zek. Really excited for today's guest, philosopher and author Charles Eisenstein. How's it going, Charles?
2: Hey, Alex. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to have you. Um, so, I don't want to spend too much time going over your bio or anything. So, if you want to learn more about Charles, head over to charleseisenstein.com. Or check out A New and Ancient Story. Um, it's a beautiful podcast. I've listened to a few episodes uh, on any of the podcast platforms. Check that out. So Charles, I first heard about you uh, in, in early 2017. Um, and again, this, this sort of goes back to me really beginning this journey of introspection and, and questioning, um, like the true nature of all the systems we've adopted um, and, and, and sort of this reality, right? And one of my friends I was having a conversation with, he recommended that I check out your book, Sacred Economics. So um, basically ever since then, ever since I ordered that book, um, I've sort of viewed you as someone who is able to articulate these deep knowings that I have within myself about the nature of reality. And, and you articulate things so well. And I would say some would say in a, in a, in a manner that is very high level, but for me, it's it, they are very digestible. So much of what you say when I read it, or when I hear you talk, I, I immediately think, wow, I, I've known that to be true. This is just the first time I've heard it verbalized. So, um,
2: hmm.
1: yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Thanks for that reflection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first questions I had for you, uh, so in, in Sacred Economics, you sort of discuss how the current economic system, the sort of exploitative wealth and resource hoarding, free market capitalism we have, um, is sort of on the verge of collapse. Uh, right now, society itself sort of seems to be on on the verge of some type of collapse perceptively. Obviously, I, I don't think it is on the collapse. I just think it's in a very big transition stage, and, and before it gets better, it will it appear to be worse. Um, I wondered if you could sort of touch on that and your your perception on what's what's sort of going on right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we necessarily need to go through total social collapse mm-hmm. and Uh, the breakdown of law and order, the breakdown of, you know, like total anarchy. Uh, It could go to that point. Uh, This whole idea of, of this immutable future that we can predict and respond to doesn't include our own agency in influencing that future. So I think that right now we're at a crossroads where many possible futures converge uh, upon the present. Uh, But for sure we're facing some kind of collapse, if nothing more than in the way that people understand the world. And before we, were, before we got on, you were telling me a little bit about your journey and going to the army, you know, and then um, going through, I would call it an unlearning process
1: mm-hmm. where
2: maybe things you thought about the world and about yourself proved not to be true. This is happening to a lot of people right now. The, and the way they respond, either they step into the, the, the chaos uh, and, and let go, or they cling even more tightly to the old orthodoxies. We're seeing both of these happen right now at the same time. And one of the, um, w- w- one of the steps out of w- what I call the old story that ordered the world and made sense of it for us one of the steps is, okay, if, if, if things that I believed and were taught and told by authority were wrong, then maybe everything is wrong. So there's this stage of, of being, I mean, it's really beautiful actually. It's like this, this willingness and openness and, and almost gullibility, uh, naivete that no longer doubts, but accepts pretty much anything. And so people, you know, in this stage, they might become vulnerable to, to enlistment in a cult, and they might go down various conspiracy rabbit holes.
1: My mom calls that. Uh, she she she'll she'll say she coined this term. She calls it cultable. It's uh, someone who is mm-hmm. sort of begins questioning, and then, or, or even is is prone to sort of narcissistic abuse and is willful, willfully manipulable in in some ways. Right.
2: Right. And and so if you we're in a story where everything was explained to you and that turns out not to be true, it's an easy leap to go to another story where everything is explained to you. But, to, but that's just a step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a further step beyond that is, into, is, is out of certainty, not the orthodox certainty, not any alternative certainty, but actually to, to, to say, I don't know and maybe nobody knows, And I'm not going to be, I no longer need to cling to an external authority that tells me what is so. So when I mentioned conspiracy theories, you know, that's usually a term of derision. Uh, But, you know, sometimes conspiracies do happen. That doesn't mean that every conspiracy theory is true.
1: (laughs) Exactly,
2: yeah. And, And this is confusing. I mean, we would sure like to be able to know what is true and what isn't. But what if some of them are true? What if you know 10% of, of the main ones are true? What if the ones that aren't true have some truth in them? Mm-hmm. You know, then then there's, it's like there's no firm ground to stand on. And that is a type of collapse that dislodges us from the old story, including the economic story you, you mentioned, mm-hmm. and opens up the possibility of something new, which is probably a series of experiments and learning experiences uh, that carry us to a destination that we cannot possibly describe from our current vantage point.
1: It's funny you say that, and I, I, I sort of think of that as the the whole idea of like it, we we jump to either thinking that okay all of these conspiracy theories are true, or we think none of them are true. There's there's no real in between. I, I I sort of think this this black and white thinking that it, that most people, the majority of people, and even in paradoxically in and of itself, me saying most people. That is black and white thinking to some degree, but fall in the state of either or black and white, this or that thinking and leave no room for gray area, no room for nuance, sort of what you and uh, Dr. Chan alluded to in your podcast. And that was such a, such a beautiful podcast, by the way. Um, I made a post on, on this around, like, I want to say six weeks ago, uh, sort of listing out all the conspiracy theories that turned out to be true because trying to, take people down this line of questioning. And in the caption, I wrote, this does not mean that every conspiracy theory is true. Rather, this sort of means that everything is worth questioning. And what I see so much of, especially from the media is that they don't want any of us to question anything. It's, it's, it's sort of, rather than helping us learn how to think it's telling us what to think. Um, I wonder if you could, sort of touch uh-huh. on
2: that a little bit. You know, that kind of black and white thinking is itself part of the, the deep mythology uh, that runs our society. It's like the meta story. It's underneath all of the, the other stories, which means that, that as long as, as you are casting the world in terms of good and evil, the good guys and the bad guys, even if you disagree on the identity of the good guys and bad guys. Even if one person is saying, no, the bad guys are the CDC and the WHO and the medical establishment, and somebody else is saying, no, 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 those are the good guys. The bad guys are the anti-vaxxers and conspiracy (laughs) nut jobs. Like they're actually agreeing on the basic layout of the world in terms of good guys and bad guys and the formula for changing the world, which is obviously to conquer the bad guys, which is a formula that has been been drilled into us uh, from childhood through the media, uh, through religion, um, and I could I could actually even go beyond that. Um, but as long as 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 we're enmeshed in that way of thinking, we still have not really stepped into a new story. Like it's and it's so tempting, you know. It's it's actually comforting. To find a bad guy, I do. Because then you can identify. Yeah, Yeah. then you know what the problem is. Like Mm -hmm. this is what's happening with coronavirus. It's not like we were super healthy before coronavirus hit, and now we're all sick as a society. We were getting (laughs) sicker and sicker and sicker for decades, and we had no idea what to do about it. And we we went on as if normal were normal. Yet, with this sneaking sense that there's something awfully wrong with the way that we are living and, 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 and the way that our bodies are, are responding to life. Like there's something not right here mm-hmm. when, you know, the incidence of childhood chronic diseases has risen from 1.6% or something like that in 1960 to 54% today. Like it's not supposed to be that way, but, but there was nothing, there was no single target mm-hmm. to identify as the cause, just yeah. as the same thing, our society has been decaying for many decades. And who are we gonna blame that on? It's, it's so comforting to have you know, terrorists mm-hmm. or Russia or something to blame <laughs> on. Yeah. But when you step out of that paradigm of find the bad guy, it brings up uncomfortable questions. Like there might not be a single cause to attack and the complex of causes includes yourself. And then you're left with in a state of helplessness, which p- precedes a state of empowerment. Helplessness has to precede empowerment because you have to deprogram from the futile responses that made you helpless.
1: I love and when that. helplessness finally, p- precedes uh, Yeah, I love that. That's that's such I mean, a we're good seeing problem.
2: this in the military too. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're in the US Army, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got all these arms, all these bombs, all these smart weapons, et cetera, et cetera, but it doesn't do any good. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: It doesn't meet the, the, the crisis in the world at all. It's useless. And and so this, this awakening, like, so I, I, like, you know, I'm not here to make the army, the bad guy either. I, I, and this is the the problem that I see a lot on like the kind of conspiracy um, community uh, that there's like this, this Disciplined, consciously evil power that o- operates through these organizations,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and and that if somebody is tainted by association with one of these organizations, they must be on the other side. Yeah. But when you actually meet somebody who works at Monsanto, or the CDC, or the U.S. Army, you know you find that wow, you know, like most of the time you find this is actually a decent, caring human being, and maybe they are. Uh, hypnotized by a certain ideology, but they also have questions about that ideology, and they're doing their best. Mm-hmm. And and they feel trapped often by the system. Like I bet there's very few top military brats who say yeah this system, this, our, our army organizational system is really working well.
1: <laughs> I mean, it that's what, that's what I'm to
2: each other about it all the time.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the like key issues that is always brought up is like, what can we do to make our force better because it isn't doing the best that it possibly can. Right. I, I what you said though, about always wanting to find an enemy. So the space that I'm stepping into of first off, Again, like having experienced what I've experienced, I think experience trumps all for on, on, on the individual level, right? I experienced what I experienced with my mom, um, sort of coming off psych meds and then stepping into a more holistic approach for healing and heal immediately after being on psych meds for 20 years in and out of mental hospitals, multiple suicide attempts. And then the same thing happened with my wife. Uh, she was diagnosed with lupus rheumatoid arthritis, stepping away from sort of being prescribed uh Oddly enough, hydroxychloroquine, um, sotilopram and a bunch of other, yeah, I know, funny. <laughs> that's a big one right now. But, and then stepping into a more holistic approach, following my mom and seeing those two steps, I immediately, again, after doing some investigations, in some degree, this is true because there is suppression of information to some degree, um, or to a large degree, I would say. But I am so quick to blame everything that I see on the pharmaceutical industry. Like, that is immediately what I do. And, in certain ways, that system has become this overly influential. I would argue, in some ways, megalomaniacal, obsessed with their their own power um, and obsessed with the money that that they make off of these their systems. Essentially, um, yeah.
2: go ahead, go ahead, can I comment on that a little bit? Yeah. Oh. You didn't even you didn't get to what you were going to say. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Some institutions are more dysfunctional and more corrupt than others, mm-hmm. and I think uh, the pharmaceutical industry is one that is um, more corrupt than others. But it's not just corruption. In a way, they do a pretty good job of responding to the problem as it is presented to them. So if you take for granted certain well-established orthodoxies. Like the contagious germ understanding of how disease happens, then, like the the problems presented to them as a war against disease, so they're going to do the kind of they're going to develop technologies of control that are necessary when, on a deeper level, when you don't believe that there is an intelligence operating in and through matter. That, that if you don't believe that the world naturally moves toward wholeness and toward life and toward more and more complexity, but that, that progress needs to be imposed from the outside, either by an extra material divinity or by human beings ourselves, which is the scientific view, then technologies of control like pharmaceutical medicine are, are, are inevitable. And and that's that's why I've I've turned towards philosophy, um, because I see that the the roots of our system go beneath our conscious awareness. So, you know, if you only attack the surface uh, phenomenon of pharmaceutical industry corruption and the influence of their money on medical research, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're only going to go so far. You're going to maybe make a more. Uh, ethical, more integrous uh, pharmaceutical industry, but its basic premises will be untouched.
1: And that's, that's, that's where I was actually going with this. Like, so I'm glad that you stepped in because it sort of per- perfectly stepped into where, what I was going to say next. It's the, what I believe is the allopathic medicine, like approach to medicine is like looking at isolated systems, right? Rather than looking, or isolated symptoms rather than the system, the body, the mind, body, spirit, as a whole being, right? I think that approach sort of covers basically every area of our society where we look at everything as isolated symptoms rather than addressing the whole as for what it for what needs to change, if that makes sense. Um, I, I sort of see that in in how we operate in the military looking at isolated incidents. I mean, we try to strategically plan and cover areas as well. And I, I think we do it more effective than other industries do and other, other organizations. But I think it all goes back to in, in America, the way we view things is in very isolated incidences and then isolated cause and effect rather than looking at an entire system as a whole, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what they call reductionism. Yeah, reduction in, is- in medicine—it's everywhere. Like the whole idea of how many cases of X, Y, or Z have there been? Like to say to to say to name it as a case of uh, COVID nineteen, or a case of pneumonia, or a case of lupus. Basically, you're creating a category that implies that it's identical. It's another example of the same thing. So you're already stripping away. The, you call it the mind-body-spirit connection, but I would also add to that the community, the relational aspect of it. Because who we are uh, is not actually a separate self. Mm-hmm. And when we understand our embeddedness and our relatedness, then we can no longer address the world piecemeal by taking it apart. That's, that's the um, the strategy of control mm-hmm. and domination and and war, which is, of course, what the military is founded on. And and I'm really, you know, interested to, to, you know, I know that there are, I mean, I've met people in the military who are having awakenings and even receiving some support in the military for that. Like the military, like they're, um, I mean, maybe you can find these things like leadership training. Mm -hmm. It's called leadership training, but it's actually not that different from, you know, uh, uh, workshop that you might do at Omega, you know, or mm-hmm. Esalen or somewhere like that. Like this development of consciousness is happening all over the place. And if we recognize that, I think that we can speak to that in, speak to that part of those institutions and the people in them. Um, and, and realize that our salvation our healing as a society isn't going to come by finally defeating whatever we identify as the virus, whatever we identify as evil. And that doesn't mean, see, this is the thing. doesn't mean that there isn't a virus. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not, and this could get into a more, a more detailed and rather technical conversation about, you know, the origin of viruses and their role in well, disease. let's
1: go. Let's go there. We absolutely can if you want to, if that's okay with you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I could a little bit, uh, but I wanted to make a larger point. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 basic mindset of what is the pathogen and how do we eradicate it or how do we resist it is very limited. Mm-hmm. There may be circumstances where that is a useful lens to understand disease or understand politics or understand uh society like there are you know i don't want to say that that there are no predatorial dangerous people out there i think there are but that is but as like an explanatory framework for all of civilization for all of our maladies that leaves out an awful lot in the same way that seeing health as a matter of protecting ourselves from predatory random viruses also leaves out an awful lot. In fact, I would say it leaves out 99.9% of health. And here we are as a society focusing on that 0.1%. Uh, so what does it leave out? You know, It leaves out the um, symbiotic role of viruses and other microorganisms that respond to diseased tissue states that transfer genetic information from cell to cell and from organism to organism that are part of evolution when that uh, transferred genetic material gets incorporated into the germline, into the genome. Um, Like there's, there's whole realms of inquiry that are invisible from the pathogenic lens. Does that mean that there's never such a thing as contagion or infection? Not necessarily, but it does raise the question: Is that the best way to look at COVID nineteen?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I don't think it is. No, and there's I'm, a lot of people um, who, who would who would agree with me.
1: No, I can com- I completely agree. And I think sort of in in the in the group that we're, we're both in, at least I th- I would say that is sort of the prerequisite for uh, for 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 being in that group. Some someone argues whether you believe in sort of this idea of germ theory or, or terrain theory. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I think like the the symbiotic connection between everything, again, missing that, I even missed it. So when I was developing my, I, I spent a lot of time developing the sort of mission statement for my podcast. And one thing that I wish I could go back and change, and I obviously can, like I'm not limited in, in my ability to change the direction of anything, but. I uh spoke on the in honoring the inherent sacred connection between all things and I think connection isn't the right word I think it's uh, honoring the inherent sacred interdependency of all things because really everything in our environment is in- interdependent upon each other or is dependent upon uh, each other um, and i I think. This idea, kind of like you said, that we need to shield ourselves from from everything. Um, I, I, this one analogy that I heard is like, if you have a plant that's dying in the sun, um, rather than cut off the leaves and shield the sun from the plant, the best thing to do is give that plant water, give it what it needs, like what it naturally needs in order in order to heal and be well, right? Um,
2: yeah, yeah, or if your fish is sick, maybe you need to clean the tank rather than to, <laughs> you know, uh vaccinate the fish.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted I wanted to sort of get into because you sort you you cover obviously topics related to what you call interbeing, um, and in, in, in your podcasts. Uh but I wanted you to sort of describe at, at the core what your idea was for that, like what interbeing means.
2: Yeah, I mean you were you were basically stating it, you know, that it's more than just separate selves having connections
0: mm-hmm.
2: or it's even more than than interdependence which still could be like, okay well i depend on you but if you were replaced then i wouldn't depend on you anymore and i depend on some beings and not others and but but interbeing um, is the idea that our very existence is relational mm-hmm. so that when my relationships are cut off uh, I become less,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I shrink. I'm no longer as full a, a, a being as I had been with this rich set of relationships. The, the word, um, when I first started using it, I, I, was, I, I was saying interbeingness. And then I found out that Thich Nhat Hanh has been using this word for a long time. Uh, he's a, a Vietnamese monk, uh, interbeing. So, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's been using it before him too, because it's such a natural term. Ubuntu is is a similar concept um, in you know West Africa, South Africa, that the the uh, uh, the idea that I am because you are. Mm-hmm. Whereas interdependency, you know, says well, the Amazon, we depend on the Amazon um, for whatever carbon sequestration. But if it were all cut down by implication, we could install carbon-sucking machines, and we would be just, we would be fine. (laughs) Interbeing understands that if the Amazon dies, something in ourselves dies. If the whales go extinct, something in ourselves has gone extinct. When your favorite place from childhood is cut down and paved over, something
1: in you I love that, I love that, but I hate it. You know what I mean? Because it, yeah. it rings so true. I mean, God, yeah. Like you see that it, it affects us on a soul level, but it truly, I mean, honestly, in, in ways that we can, and in some ways that we can't measure it affects us on a, on a biological level where yeah. like where, where the microbiome
2: you... is part of that, Like that's they yeah. If, if you have a, a, an, an anemic relationship with the microbial world, and you're not having this constant f- flow through of biological genetic material through your body, mm-hmm. then you become less healthy. You are less healthy because healthy me- health means wholeness, right? So you become less. You become a more constricted, narrow being when you're not in full relationship to, to the microbial world and to the human world. So lockdown, quarantine, isolation, they reduce our beingness. And it's no wonder that people are suffering, that, you know, suicide levels are sky high, that depression is sky high. I, I heard something like 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds have contemplated suicide seriously in the last three months. Like this this is, of course, because cause when so much of our being is cut off, and it's, this isn't just because of COVID, I mean, the the commodity economy that we live in with its reliance for everything that we need on distant strangers mediated by markets and money, that cuts us off from the full complement of relationships that we had a few generations or a few centuries ago, uh, and some people in the world still have, where everything that they use is part of a relationship. Everything that, that their house built by themselves or people that they know, They're they're instruments made by somebody that they know. The the, the food grown by people who love them, prepared by people who love them. Uh, Like the whole society is this web of relationship. Yeah. Uh, Which means that there's a lot of market potential there because you can cut off these relationships and sell people things that you've cut off from them sell them the child care that they no longer doing for themselves the buildings that they no longer build for themselves the food they no longer grow for themselves the music they no longer make for themselves etc cetera, etc cetera. but but that cutoff has happened you know for been an ongoingly for hundreds of years so do you, do you many- attribute
1: it do you attribute it because like there's certain areas that have not been cutting themselves off right like i, I, know, I know you know that as well but it's do you attribute that to some sort of like American imperialism or Westernized imperialism or colonialism that is sort of capturing in a way these these societies that are very um, symbiotic in, in their approach?
2: Yeah, uh, the, the the imperialism, the colonialism are instruments for the fulfillment of this of this of this process mm-hmm. of this trend of separation. Mm-hmm. which is driven uh, on a deep level by the money system, mm-hmm. by its need to grow, which is necessary when the money system is based on interest yeah. and debt. So that, that's what I wrote the book Sacred Economics about. That's like the main theme, mm-hmm. that that part of our transition now has to be toward a different kind of money system that's not based on debt. And, and this is, again, part of the collapse. When we talked about collapse, part of it is that, Is it's built into the laws of of, uh, compound interest. Like you have to keep growing forever or you face collapse. Mm -hmm. And when we reach social and ecological limits to growth, then the system can't work anymore. And, And faced with that crisis, either you can let go and forge a new system or you can try to push it a little farther. And the way you push it a little farther is to find some other thing to convert into money, Uh some other new good or service that you can sell. Now, that means taking away something that we already have. Some need that we're meeting without money needs to be replaced. So for example, um, I mean, even like security, all the stuff about defund the police, Uh why is that even a conversation? It's because communities don't have their traditional ways to mediate disputes and to rein in to rein in antisocial behavior, like in a tight community, you can't get away with that shit. Mm-hmm. Like one of the grandfathers, one of the elders is gonna to talk to you. People are gonna stop pro- providing services. They're gonna stop. No, I'm not gonna shoe your horse. I'm busy, <laughs> you know? Like, like you can't get along without without your community when you depend on community.
1: Mm-hmm. When
2: you depend on money that mediates relationships with distant service providers. You don't need your community. You have—they have no leverage over you. You're not part. You're not embedded. So you need police then. So this is so this is a, another um, example of attacking the symptom as if it were the yeah. cause. The whole conversation about the police, which isn't to say you know that there's not racism mm-hmm. um, in police forces, um, but we're basically as a society we're faced with an insoluble, insoluble dilemma. Conflicting needs and values cannot be resolved from the place that we're trying to resolve them. So yeah, um, but yeah, it's the money system that, and you could call it capitalism, but even that <clears throat> yeah, even that is begs the question, what is capital? Capital is a social agreement about money and property. These things do not exist in physical reality. Mm-hmm. Squirrels do not recognize property lines. Yeah. <laughs> they are not part of the earth, right? Yeah. They're, they are stories mm-hmm. that we create. And and that's what defines capital. So what capitalism is, depends on what capital is. And that depends on what we agree that it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: those agreements can change because we are human beings and we can make new agreements.
1: Yeah, the, I, I think, I, I think so many, like that right there is so tough for people to conceptualize, right? Because even walking, like I'm, I'm saying people that you would walk up to on the street, if you were to say that to someone, like to some individual, they, it would be so far above what they are able to conceptualize for, for, for most, for many people, um, because it's been so ingrained into their head and it kind of goes back to like this approach of, again, I, I, this is, I always touch on this allopathic medicine, right? Like when you s- show someone Another way of looking at the body and the environment, which I would argue is the, again, holistic approach is recognizing that natural relationship that you have with the earth and the environment and in the spiritual inherent connection between all of it or interdependency or inner being. I love, I love that term. Um, It's people go into a, a deep state of sort of cognitive dissonance where they're met was something that goes directly against what they have been told and taught to believe about the way everything works and it, it, it's so tough to to break break this down for people in a digestible manner you know
2: yeah i mean usually what what it takes is the old beliefs not working anymore
1: and that's what's happening right now though
2: yeah but that's kind of what happened to your mom, right? And, and, yeah. and to your wife, like they, they tried to do as doctor told them, believing as, as they'd been told that they would be healthy that way. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work and it didn't work and it didn't work. And eventually some part of them rebelled enough to try something else mm-hmm. and that something else did work. And they don't even necessarily know why, but all they know is that at least at the outset, all they know is that what I was told was wrong or very incomplete. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this is... It's, it's, And that's why you can't actually persuade somebody who hasn't at least stepped to the edge of it not working anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, this happened to me too. It's not like I was smarter than everybody else and decided that the world story, the mythology that I'd been offered in my expensive education was wrong. It was that, yeah, I had like... An underlying discontent, um, a kind of muted misery, in in college, like thinking this can't be it, this can't be right, you know. But it's not like I I punctured the matrix. I, it's not like I was able to step outside the matrix on my own power. Yeah. It was when I um, went to Taiwan after graduating from college. And began having experiences that blatantly violated what I'd been told was possible. And so, what am I going to believe? You know, what I've been told, or my own lying eyes? Mm-hmm. Like, I decided to believe my own lying eyes, like my own experiences, that that I didn't have an explanation for, but they unraveled the fabric of reality as I had known it. And and then I became receptive. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have been cultable at that time, uh, but I, I and, and it's not like every rabbit trail I went down turned out to be a place I wanted to stay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, I, I think that's healthy though. Right. Like, is, like yeah. continue, like not staying in the position that you're in, continuing to question and continuing to develop. Right. I think complacency leads to you being extremely closed-minded and not willing to sort of look elsewhere for answers. And and I think people that have this natural propensity to continue to question things are people that I like to naturally gravitate to anyway because they're more open to other possibilities. Um, That's what I think like makes me relate to the more in a way I guess you could say hippie, or or it's it's this weird merging that we're seeing right now of like conspiracy minded people and like people that believe in the mind body spirit connection. You know what I mean? And they're more open to other possibilities.
2: Yeah, uh, there is this uh, weird um, uh, merging of far left and far right right now, mm-hmm. uh, and really, it's it's almost making those categories incomprehensible, mm-hmm. uh, who's left and who's right. Like a lot of the most trenchant anti-war materials coming out of libertarian sites right now, <laughs> yeah,
1: <that's so laughs> not true.
2: those who call themselves left-wing, um, whereas the so-called left is quite, um, generally speaking, quite dogmatically um, accepting of, of what the medical authorities are telling them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm like, I thought Unquestioning acceptance of authority was conservative. <laughs> you know, I thought like liberals in the left were supposed to question the man, question authority. So there is this this mix-up right now. Uh, and you know, like sometimes I'm, I'm on one of those those sites that that is doubting the COVID narrative, uh, doubt it. You know, like critiquing. U.S. military imperialism, neoliberal capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, and then like there'll be some like appallingly racist article. Uh, you know, I just came across one on the UN's review, where it's like, well, you know, scientifically it's obvious that black people are uh, of lesser intelligence than white people. Look, the data shows it clearly, and I'm like have you actually looked for other explanations? Like the cultural context, cultures of poverty, uh, legacy trauma that's passed down genetically, uh, like, you know, addiction and alcoholism that are caused by economic despair, which is locked in by generations. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could, instead of jumping to, oh, well, we're, you know, whites are obviously genetically superior. Um, So like, you know, I, I can't, and this is part of the phenomenon of wanting a home to rest into
0: um,
2: a, a re, a, an oasis of certainty where because someone on this site or in this community says it, you know, it must be true. Yeah. We, we, we so want this refuge and it doesn't exist right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that, that goes back to people um, externalized or sort of looking at these perceived authority figures, whatever side, whatever group they identify with, they look at these perceived as authority figures of that group as infallible. So they always defer to the opinion of that group rather than sort of looking at data on all sides of the spectrum and then digesting it and using their intuition as a guide to sort of determine what it's is kind of, it's It's
2: true. kind of human nature. It's, mm-hmm. it's human nature to do this like you look at some look at something you don't understand it that's weird what do you do you look to the person next to you did you just see that uh-huh. did you just see that what what was that and you get together and you decide what it was uh-huh. this is like tens of thousands of years old this is why human beings are so successful actually uh-huh. because we have these practices to maintain group coherence so it's from this evolutionary point of view it's actually more important to mold your opinion into conformity with the group so that you can have coherence and cooperation than it is to be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's, it's kind of a, a, like our expression of opinions are very much a form of uh, social grooming and in-group identity and, and uh, signaling of uh, cooperativeness. And it usually in a healthy society, it serves quite well right now you know we we've we've entered, entered this collective delusion that that these mechanisms reinforce and it's actually the people who don't conform to the group that are playing a, an important role right now
1: yeah and that's so tough cuz like again and this goes this goes back to you everyone tries to fit perceptive other in this sort of box Uh, or in one box or this box or that box, right? Because like I would consider myself one that is being like non-conformist, because I really try to first look at if if this that I'm viewing, this information is inherently separatist in nature. I think separation is to some degree based in fear, then I have a higher propensity to not trust what it's saying. It may have some truths in it, but I have a higher tendency so to like sort of push that away I mean more inclined to push that away versus something that is more pointing towards unity which I believe is more of a love-based um ideal I right I, I look at that and think of it more as truth but I so often now just because I am perceptibly non-conformist right for or what I would call non, non-conformist I get attacked by so many people saying that I'm some crazy QAnon Conspiracy theorists, and I've like said multiple times now that I don't believe Q to be real. But regardless of whether I did or not, it's it's this lumping of people into these boxes, sort of fitting them into these boxes that that sort of goes back to what you were saying. Like everyone looks around, I'm like, okay, it's like a groupthink, right? Like groupthink, we think that you are you align with Q and on, but it's also because we are so willfully manipulable um to some degree because we have been taught what to think rather than how to think it by by perceived authority figures it's it's really a frustrating situation that rather than sort of see behind these these labels that a lot of people that are talking about these things are really just trying to preach a message of unity to everyone you know Cause I've, I've even seen on some of your things, like your, your Wikipedia people try to like, like tear you down, um, to some degree. And I know you discussed that with Zach Bush. And I'm just like, my goodness. Yeah. I,
2: yeah. But that, that's the thing. Like who's in, who's out, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who's mm-hmm. part of the group, who isn't part of the group. And if you say something that violates group norms, then, um, uh, a label will be affixed to your name. So QAnon, whether or not it's true, that's just a code
1: mm-hmm.
2: for unacceptable. Yeah, and yeah, um, you know, I get a certain amount of that as well, um, which I mostly ignore. Because um, you know, I mean, like that's the thing. Like, I'm sure that I'm totally wrong about something important.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know what it is, but I. how do I know that? Or why do I think that's probably true? I'm not sure, but it probably is true because 20 years ago, I felt just as certain about the way I saw the world and I turned out to be totally wrong about some aspects of it. Uh, so why wouldn't that be true now? And I guess even like wrong, you know, that word actually... Um, it's not quite accurate. You know, it's that, I I like to say that that a state of belief is a state of being and that whoever we are at a certain moment, however we're being, whatever the condition of our soul, whatever uh, traumas and wounds are coming to the surface for healing, whatever configuration of personalities is ha, is emerging at a certain moment in ourselves that attracts the beliefs that resonate with that that give it that give that s- state of the soul an expression in the physical world so eventually as the as the soul evolves the beliefs that had co-resonated with its state of being are no longer relevant.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like they no longer fit. Like you yeah. feel like, and I think a lot of people are feeling the staleness of their beliefs. It's not like they don't believe them anymore, but there's not a lot of the juice in it.
1: Yeah, there's no depth to the to what they're believing. I I think yeah. I think like that that goes back to again. I think what I would call one of the largest issues in society is, again, we are being told what to think rather than how to think about things. And then the other piece of that is because we externalize um, and look to authority for information rather than trusting our own ability to, to discern and, and look for things is we are now denying people their individual experience, all in the name of what is objective truth, which obviously objective truth exists on some level, but it's it's we're denying people their own individual experience and sort of gaslighting them to think that their reality isn't true, if that makes sense.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could go into this whole thing about how to think.
1: I would love to, because you're one of the best thinkers that I've come across.
2: Like So for one thing, um, listening to authority isn't fundamentally bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, in, in traditional societies, the way that you learn is you seek out a master. Mm-hmm. You seek out somebody to apprentice to. If you want to be a carpenter, you learn from a carpenter. and He says, do it this way. And he might not even tell you why until five years later when you have the other reference points to even understand why. Or maybe he, you don't, he doesn't need to tell you because after you've done it that way for a long time, you understand why. And having mastered that, like, like so the, there is a proper relationship to authority that, that um, works to the extent that the authority is trustworthy. Our authorities today are not trustworthy. They've betrayed our trust. Yet we still have a natural inclination to look to authority uh, as part of our learning process, so this is this breakdown in the legitimacy of authority is part of our of our condition right now, and given that, um, it, it does beg the question. Okay, well, how how do we know? Like, how how do we learn? Um, how should we learn? And for me, um, I, I have a practice that I've Applied for many many years, which is, um, I, I call it believe everything I read. You know how they say you don't believe don't believe everything you read, don't yeah. believe everything you hear. Well, I have the opposite. I believe everything, like which means I try to find what's true in it, and I include in that inquiry the source of the information, because if somebody said it, it's coming from their view of the world. What is that view of the world that would lead them to say it? Sometimes it might be that they don't actually even believe it, but they're being paid to say it. But usually people believe what they say, or at least they believe that they believe what they say. So to really understand something, you have to put yourself in the position of the one saying it. And and, and, and so that leads to the second question, which is what is it like to be you? What is it like to sit in your story? What is it like to see the world from your seat? And and like, so one way to do that is that you actually read the material of the people that you vehemently disagree with. You don't just read your side's version of their beliefs, which is what almost everybody does. Yeah. Like how many progressives actually read Breitbart? (laughs) <laughs> or actually read, you know, they, they, they'll read what, what you know, the Huffington Post or the New York Times says that the conservatives are saying, mm-hmm. but they don't actually enter into that world, mm-hmm. which is a disastrous strategy, even from the point of view of conflict, yeah. even if you want to defeat the other side, if you're going to war against your image of the other side, without actually understanding them, you're going to lose the war.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, this
2: is basic Swinza, you know, <laughs> yeah. part of war. Like you, 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 you have to actually understand the enemy. But to do that, you have to let go of your judgments about the enemy. And there's a letting go to like, to let go of your judgments and to say, okay, maybe I don't know why they're saying what they're saying because the reason we're offered is usually that they're stupid, ignorant, and evil. And that's why they're saying it.
1: It's almost like, (laughs) to a certain degree, psychological operations that you would usually think would be used against the other side are being used on the believers or people who align with that given side, right? And then add fact checkers, let's say in the social media space on top of that, right? So as an example, the pandemic part two documentary um, that came out, fact checkers now have like thrown a label on top of that. And they only really address three things within the, the documentary that may or may not be true. They don't address the documentary as a whole, but they have so effectively labeled the entire thing as completely false, at least perceptively. Um, Cause when people scroll across that, uh, if they're, they've been taught not to continue to question, which is what I love, which is beautiful about your sort of line of, uh, processing information is it's the exact opposite of that right now in society, we've been told to, Oh, this says I shouldn't read it. So I'm just not even going to consider it. Right. Even though there may or may not be some truth. And that's not to say everything that is fact checked is actually true. It's, it's the opposite though. It's, or it's not the opposite. It's the, it's that you should look into what it is saying. There may be some truths contained within, right?
2: Yeah. And you know, ultimately like you can, you know, look into it and look into it more and look into the fact checks and then the fact checks of the fact checks, you know. And at some point, I find um, that I just have to decide to trust somebody. Yeah. For most things. Like, as far as COVID, you know, and PCR tests and things like that, like, unless I actually open my own laboratory... And do this work myself, I'm gonna to have to trust somebody. So it's not a bad thing, but it's something that should be acknowledged. yeah because then it's a matter of who do I trust and why.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if I'm honest with myself, that why might involve um, my personal my personality makeup. Mm-hmm. like I tend not as a universal rule but i tend to identify with people who defy authority <laughs> and trust them more mm-hmm. but sometimes what the authorities are saying is right yeah and 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 i'm biased against them because yeah. it's just because they're authority so like and as i think that the more that we are aware of our own biases the less powerful they are to blind us to, to the truth. Yeah. But it's, well, and that goes back back to
1: introspection, right? Like, I think so many people to struggle and struggle with discerning what it is and is not true because they haven't done introspective work to get to know themselves to some degree. A a lot of people like
2: having, And I I, I just want to say though, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but go ahead. This, this tendency to, to, and I do it too, but to jump to here's what people are doing wrong. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Like, okay, why aren't they doing introspective work from Mm -hmm. like the most compassionate viewpoint? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: What does it take? Like I, the first thing I ask is when in my life have I not done introspective work Mm -hmm. and what brought me to do it? Yeah. And how can we welcome people into that? Uh, And how can we hold their hand over that threshold from mindless acceptance of what they're told to doing this introspective work uh, that like, what does it take um, to begin that self-examination rather than, and I'm not saying you were doing this, but, but rather than saying, well, some people just aren't doing that introspective work. Like that kind of leads to say, well, do your introspective work.
1: Yeah, no, it's, Um, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to do. um, And people aren't, provided with the proper information and, and the proper, um, I hate even using the term proper with, with the gentleness to bring them like, like, like you said, hold their hand on how to do it.
2: Uh, uh, Let me, let me tell you what I think is needed.
1: Okay. Please do.
2: Examples of humility, Mm -hmm. like public examples of people questioning, their beliefs that they are identified with. Public figures saying, I was just wrong about that. And I have no excuse. Um, public figures saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that is rare. That kind of leadership is rare. But when you see somebody do it, it makes it so much easier to do it yourself.
1: That's so true. And we don't ever see that right now. That's 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 the issue. Not very much.
2: No. 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 People are, are dead set on being right. And demonstrating it and being vindicated. Do
1: you, do you think that's a that's a function of again because like I know you've lived quite a quite a bit of time um, in Taiwan right so do you think that's a function of our culture alone or is that true amongst uh, all cultures that you've experienced?
2: Uh, I mean Taiwan has its own version of it um, the necessity to to preserve face do mm-hmm.
1: um, so you think it's just more of a like natural human inclination to do that? Then?
2: Some of it has to do with our school system, mm-hmm. which rewards us for being right. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it has to do with the lack of strong community, which um, increases the need to construct an identity of being right and being smart where if you're really held in close community you don't need to pretend so much you're accepted for who you really are rather than for the image you're presenting because people who know you really well see through your image mm-hmm. and that's what you discover when you get into a romantic partnership mm-hmm. you know at first you're in love with each other's image that you successfully present you know but then after a few years you know, you let down your guard, you are as you truly are, mm-hmm. you see the other person as she truly is, there's no more pretense, and then the real love starts mm-hmm. to be loved and love, to, to love and be loved for, for who you really are. Like that, we have that in partnerships, uh, but we don't have that so much beyond the immediate family to, to, to be known that well. So any culture where there is this breakdown of intimate community is likely to have the whole phenomenon of, 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 of face or of um, vanity, um, the uh, identity with being right, the fear of being shown to be wrong, the, the humiliation of that. Uh, especially when people are 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 you know viciously attacked for being wrong. Like there's no space there for somebody to change. Yeah. Because if you if you re- if you break down, then it's then you you know it's like the turtle who's put a shell and now the the vulture attacks can attack him. Like like
1: that's what really bothers me about cancel culture, right? Like that you, that we see so much of today is that when people when when things surface regarding people or people do something that is that many perceive to be wrong, they're immediately canceled and cast aside. And I I think it's creating a situation where other people are so scared to mess up that they are so scared to be authentically who they are. And ultimately like we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes. You know, it's really frustrating seeing that heightened so much and, so much of the generation below mine, like they're, they they are obsessed with cancel culture. I mean, my little brother talks about how that's one of the things about his generation that he hates more than anything is, is canceling other people for wrongdoings. And Mm -hmm. some wrongdoings that are done are obviously things that are like a, a serial killer. You know what I mean? Something that but, e- but even, but even then to some degree, they, they are people who are broken that are in, in need of, in need of love to some degree, you know, it's, it's a balance. But again, going back to like this idea of cancel culture, I think is creating a situation where people are really scared to be completely authentic and, and, and express their authentic beliefs.
2: Yeah. Uh, that would I think that would be another long conversation um to tease apart all the different things that go into what you're calling cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't think I want to go down that particular <laughs> That's okay. down That's right okay. now.
1: Um well in, in summary, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to be solutionary in, in my approach. Like all the things that we covered, um, many of them being problems, what are what are some like major solutions that you, Charles Eisenstein, see um that we could start stepping into uh, as for, for humanity as a whole.
2: Yeah. Um, at some point I talked about, or we talked about the stories, the underlying stories of our culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and at, at the bottom is the story of separation mm-hmm. that says that who you are is a separate self in a world of other.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that humans are separate from the world. And therefore, that our progress, our advancement means to dominate and control the world that is separate from us, to kill the pathogens, to outcompete the other beings, to master natural forces, and to impose intelligence upon a world that has none, et cetera, et cetera. And if and, and our whole society reflects that story, including the find the enemy approach to problem solving the categorizing of people as good and evil, uh, all that. So the antidote or the the next step beyond that into the story of interbeing is not only to tell a different story, but it's to live a different story. Because anytime that we interact with somebody and we provide for them a data point of generosity, kindness, love, and compassion, that unravels the story of separation a little bit. Because it's like, that doesn't really fit in to a world where everybody's out for themselves. Like the, the other day, um, we had this extra washing machine in our house <laughs> that uh, the previous owner left there. And, and, We were like, yeah, you know, when our our washing machine is kind of old, when it breaks down, we have a backup, you know. But it was just sitting there for over a year, and finally Stella put it on Craigslist for free. And like this this couple came from you know forty five minutes away, and they borrowed their father's pickup truck, you know, and like they're like, yeah, we only have a dryer, we don't have a washer. Like they could not afford a washing machine. They were so grateful when well, we could have probably sold it for a couple hundred bucks. And I'm not saying like we did any saintly thing here, but but just like imagine what that communicates to them. That, yeah, some people are generous. We're not all in it for ourselves. It it communicates that the world is not actually as we've been told. So anytime, so I consider... Um, acts of generosity like that, even as small a one as I described, they are political acts because our whole political system is based on distrust. It's based on conflict. It's based on mutual suspicion. It's based on total lack of solidarity. How do we build real solidarity and real trust? I think it happens one relationship at a time. And I'm not saying, you know, don't engage politically on a big scale but let's not neglect this level and on a, even on a more fundamental level anytime that you commit an act of generosity or kindness compassion and love you are issuing a prayer to the world to the organizing intelligence of the world and aligning yourself with a world that is built on that kind of act. You're saying, you're declaring to the witness, this is the world I want. And I want it enough that I will violate the story that I had been in, that that surrounds us. Because the rational mind it's like, that's crazy. Why would you just give it away? You know, you could get a couple hundred bucks. Why would you just give it away? We all face those, those moments every day where, where, where can I afford to, you know, what am I going to get out of it? And when we listen to that other part of ourselves that actually already knows the truth of interbeing, that already knows that every act is significant, that already knows that what I give, I will receive in some form that no gift is wasted, that I am creating the world that I will inhabit through every action. We touch that part of ourselves and the world begins to change. So I guess that would be my, my uh, solution is simply to touch that part of yourself that already knows it's true.
1: On the, individual, on the individual level too, that's, yeah. that's so needed. Um, thank you so much for that. That was really, really, really beautiful. Wow. yeah this this was a good conversation. I learned a lot about myself in this conversation too, uh, even even some areas that I mean kind of kind of what you touched on with the uh introspection it's it's being more gentle and helping people get into that introspection work um,
2: yeah, it is about mostly about being gentle and welcoming it's the mm-hmm. spirit of welcome mm-hmm. you know and and to realize that if you are introspective then you've received a gift it's not something that you necessarily earned for yourself yeah like that's the awakening of consciousness is a gift not something that that we achieve and when we recognize that then we become generous and we're like yeah I want to pass on that gift and welcome you into that circle of generosity yeah yeah
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Charles. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it was my meaningful. pleasure. It was fun. Yeah, was, I think we talked about a lot. We're kind of, kind of all over the place. Um, you're, you're a very, very deep person. I really look up to what you have to offer the world. And I, I love your podcast. Uh, I want everyone listening to, to please go check out uh, Charles at charleseisenstein.com. And then also check out uh, a new and ancient story on any of the major podcast uh, platforms. So Thank you so much for coming on, Charles. Yep. Thanks, Alec.